Good morning. Jane Polly is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. The Memorial Day weekend is a time for honoring the military, to be sure, but it also doubles as the unofficial beginning of summer. It's a time for recreations of every sort, including a pastime that's recently become legal in several states, opening doors of opportunity to a number of celebrities. Ben Tracy will report our cover story. Is it hard to find high-quality plants? Only if you're really high. <laughs> With his own marijuana brand, stoner legend Tommy Chong enjoys going to work these days. I'm the guy that, that smells it, feels it, puts it in my pipe, and smokes it. Quality control. <laughs> and quality control. But he's not the only celebrity seeing green. The growing business of celebrity pot later on Sunday morning. Nothing like that would ever have happened back in the neighborhood Faith Saley will be revisiting this morning. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. 50 years ago, Mr. Rogers first welcomed children into his television neighborhood. Please won't you be my neighbor. A new documentary examines the life of Fred Rogers. One of the most exceptional things about Mr. Rogers is that he was exactly who you think he was. In fact, he was even a better version of that person. Later on Sunday morning, a visit with Mr. Rogers. Steve Martin and Martin Short are touring the country. Two amigos in the service of comedy, as Tony DeCopel will be showing us. You look like Anderson Cooper froze to death on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Martin Short and Steve Martin sure know how to get a laugh, even when it's at the other's expense. People work as teams and they hate each other, yeah. and that's that's probably more common. So I'm just learning to hate Steve. Yeah, we're not learning. there yet. Yeah, 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 we're not there yet. Steve Martin and Martin Short, a sort of show business love story ahead on Sunday morning. Those stories and more when Sunday morning continues. Celebrities are no strangers to lending their name to products, but recreational marijuana? Although it's still against the law in 41 states, a lot of big names are seeing green, as Ben Tracy will report in our cover story. Hollywood has long been addicted to a good marijuana joke. So these are our raw cannabis flowers. This is and now that pot is legal for recreational use in nine states... Cool, yeah, this stuff's awesome. ...with more on the horizon, some celebrities are laughing all the way to the bank. Is it hard to find high-quality plants? Only if you're really high. <laughs> and who better than Tommy Chong to be one of the first so-called ganjapreneurs? I mean, man, I could probably smoke this whole joint, man, and still walk away, man. It's a natural fit, given he gladly let his career go up in smoke. He and his partner, Cheech Marin, practically invented the stoner comedy. Hey, man. Am I driving okay? How much of what you have in this life is due to this? Everything. Everything. All the movies, all the records, my nice house in the Palisades, <laughs> my Tesla, 
you look at me, I'm a high school dropout. But marijuana really has been responsible for everything. Including a nine-month stint in prison in 2003 for selling glass bongs on the internet. You know, our quality, especially Chung's choice, is so high. But that, now he's uh, legit, selling a line of organically grown cannabis called Chong's Choice. And as the face of the brand, well, he has to make sure it's good. I'm the tester. There you go. I'm the guy that, that smells it, feels it, puts it in my pipe, and smokes it. Quality control. <laughs> I'm quality control all the way. <laughs> Chong's Choice is for sale in six states, and as with any other product, name recognition matters. Do you think somebody who walks into a store like this for the first time and sees your name on something says, okay, I know him, I trust this? Absolutely, absolutely. Especially with me, you know, they know the movies, uh, they know me from all sorts of, like Dancing with the Stars, for instance. You know. I'm quite sure that subliminally, a lot of those old guys are going, dude, I better start smoking some pot too. You know? So I can dance like that guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. From fashion to fragrance to beverages, both hard and soft, celebrity sells. And with marijuana sales expected to reach eight to $10 billion by the end of this year and projected to double to 20 billion by 2022, more celebs are investing money and lending their names to get a foothold in this growing market. This was an industry in the shadows. It was all around on the black market for many decades, kind of rose up very quickly. A lot of people were shocked by how fast it materialized. Chris Walsh is founding editor of Marijuana Business Daily. Yes, there is such a thing. You get someone who's not as familiar with marijuana. Maybe they're a tourist, maybe they're a local, they haven't done it since college. And they go into a store and there are 50 jars with different strains and they're all named something different. He says celebrities such as Chong, Willie Nelson, Snoop Dogg, and even Whoopi Goldberg are helping marijuana go mainstream. So that's a great option for relaxing. What we found is that the stores can basically charge an average of a 25% markup over the same type of product that doesn't have a celebrity name on it. So clearly, consumers are willing to pay more, and it's working. Grammy-winning artist Melissa Etheridge is getting in on the act from the ground up. This is, this is my dream. This is my uh, build it and they will come. She calls these 47 acres in California's Santa Cruz Mountains Etheridge Farms. It's one thing to, to use this. It's one thing to be an advocate for it. Why did you want to go into the business? I wanted to be in the front of this because I, I feel that there's not a representation for middle-aged women in the cannabis industry. This new business venture is personal. Etheridge says she discovered the healing power of marijuana during painful chemotherapy sessions after she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2004. And so they gave me like super duper duper chemo, which was, it was really, really horrible, especially in your gastrointestinal system. So immediately, as soon as I took the first uh, chemo and you start feeling it by the end of the night, I, I smoked, and you get instant relief from nausea, and you have an appetite. For Etheridge, pot isn't just about getting high, it's about getting healthy. And she says the product grown here will have strict standards. You know it's been 
pesticide free. It's the quality and it's measured out. You're going to be able to understand what the dosage is. And that's, that's the product I want to present. Edibles, my friends. Don't there are even edible first. products like ginger snap weed cookies and other baked goods. If you have an edible and you're like, hmm, what do I do? Do I eat the whole thing? No, is the answer. Do not ever <laughs> eat the whole thing of an edible, people. And then there's the cannabis-infused lavender cream. Arthritis sufferers swear by this. Women who haven't been able to knit for years have, have uh, put it on their hands. They cover it with gloves overnight, and they wake up and, and believe me, they, it's you know, that effective. I, it's so effective. It's 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 kind of sad that it's not out in the world. Etheridge Farms is not yet up and running. You get relationships with them. They're, they're, they're beautiful, the plants. <laughs> but she hopes that putting the Etheridge name on her products will lead to more people experiencing a higher level of relaxation. Life is hard enough. Let's, let's take it easy on ourselves. We don't have to go through life you know, clutching the steering wheel. You know, we, can, we can relax a little bit. Will you make believe with me? All right. Trolley to the neighborhood of make believe. You might remember that trolley that helped take countless American children into Mr. Rogers' land of make believe. It was must see TV. And this morning, we're back in the neighborhood with Faith Saley as our guide. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. His song, his smile, and his sweaters are old friends to generations of children who grew up with Mr. Rogers. Hi, neighbor. Over here is King Friday's castle. This is the real castle. David yes, Newell was Mr. McFeely, the neighborhood's speedy delivery man. Good day, Mr. Rogers, oh. speedy delivery. He was also the show's props guy and PR man. Speedy delivery. We had a very small staff. It was like, let's get together and put on a show. <laughs> People always ask me, did you learn anything from working on the show? And I said, after that many years, I could build a house out of construction paper and round tip scissors. Nick Tallow was the floor manager and the neighborhood's court jester. You sometimes gave Mr. Rogers a hard time. I gave him lots of hard times. <laughs> like swapping his shoes for a smaller pair. <laughs> but when it came to helping children make sense of a very complicated and often troubling world, Fred Rogers was a man with a mission. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all parenting, all relationships love or the lack of it. I think what he was trying to do is teach us how to be human. Please won't you be my neighbor. Oscar winner Morgan Neville's new documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, is an exploration of Fred Rogers, the man. This new medium was coming, television, and he recognized something from the moment he saw it, that many generations of children were going to be raised by this thing, and that somebody had to use that as a tool to help children. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood went on the air nationwide in February 1968. It's a beautiful day. Fred Rogers, an ordained minister who studied early childhood education and music composition, wrote the scripts, 
the songs, and created the characters. Fred Rogers did all the voices for all the puppets. Meow, 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 meow. Good luck, meow. Each of those puppets in the land of make-believe is actually some facet of his personality. I don't want any noise while I'm taking a nap. Lady Elaine Fairchild's The Troublemaker. I'm starting my oh. own television station. King Friday is kind of blustery. If it were not for me, there would be no television. Daniel Striper Tiger's my name. All of the insecurities and fears that Fred had as a child, he brought out through Daniel. Many of us tend to forget all of our childhood fears, and Fred didn't forget any of that. What does assassination mean? From the beginning, the program talked to children about difficult subjects. Even those familiar 1960s traumas adults had trouble understanding. Have you heard that word a lot today? Yes. As simple as this show seemed, it was anything but simple. There was so much thought and consideration that went into every single thing he did. I've been terribly concerned about the graphic display of violence. There is just so much that a very young child can take. Oh, there's Officer Clements. In 1969, with battles over desegregation raging, Mr. Rogers invited the neighborhood's Officer Clemens to share his kiddie pool. Would you like to join me? It looks awfully enjoyable. I thought it was civil rights light. That pool of water was so insignificant. I didn't quite get the impact of the symbolism that so many people would see it and totally understand it. Cool water on a hot day. Hmm. Francois Clemens was 24 years old, an aspiring operatic tenor, when Fred Rogers first asked him to visit the neighborhood. He walked around and showed me the tree the clock, the castle, and I thought, well, all that's well and good. <laughs> but there was a part of me thinking, what does that have to do with me? I'm a ghetto boy. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, the steel mill. Guys that I grew up with gambled, they drank, they did other things that were not so positive, but they didn't play with puppets. I might even like to tell people how to fly. <laughs> Clemens says he didn't get Fred Rogers' message for a long time. That's why you're so special. And then one day... During that segment, we made eye contact. And he said, you know, I like you uh, just the way you are. You know, you make you every make day, day a, special, a special, day. special day. And I like you just the way you are. And something inside of me turned on, like it's turning on right now. And I thought, he's talking to me. We've just got that inside of us. And when we can know it for sure, it's such a good feeling. No man had ever told me he loved me, and he did. And I knew he meant it. I knew he meant it. He certainly made me a better person. In 1969, Joanne Rogers watched from home as her husband testified before Congress. All right, Rogers, you got the floor. I could tell that he was nervous. Defending public television to a skeptical Senator John Pastore. I'm the host, and I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. That story was a marshmallow underneath. That's what Fred Rogers could do. He could get yeah. to everybody's well, marshmallow. That's right. <laughs> Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> what do you miss most about your dad? No. <laughs> I would have to say probably his sense of humor. It's one thing people don't really quite get is he was a funny guy. 
Jim Rogers says his father would sometimes use the puppet voices at home. If we were at dinner and there was something that he wanted to say that wasn't particularly dad-like, he would use Lady Elaine's voice. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> where'd that come from? As a king, I never indulge in baloney. At the Fred Rogers Center in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, Emily Uren is archiving songs, scripts, memorabilia, and thousands of letters addressed to Mr. Rogers. It's amazing what they were comfortable sharing with Fred. What do you think about this? How can I deal with this? And Fred did respond to every letter that came in. Every letter? Yes. But Fred Rogers did have his critics, and there were myths. He had been a sniper and that he had tattoos. We tend to think that most of our cultural figures have some dark side, and we've seen so many of our cultural icons falling from grace, so you almost expect it at this point. I've got to be off, but I'll see you tomorrow. One of the most exceptional things about Mr. Rogers is that he was exactly who you think he was. In fact, he was even a better version of that person. Fred Rogers died in 2003. His gentle message of tolerance and love, says director Morgan Neville, is more necessary today than ever. What he left in the millions of us who grew up watching him and loving him, that's his legacy. You always make each day a special day by just your being you. I like you just the way you are. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. And now, direct from the Egyptian delicatessen here in beautiful downtown Burbank. Fifty years ago, a madcap new comedy show upended Monday Night TV. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. <laughs> With its frenetic pace, wild cast, and punchlines that pulled no punches, <laughs> Laugh-In was political. I hear Governor Reagan said that if he were ever elected president, he would bring peace to the world. Seems like a terrible price to pay. Provocative and just plain silly. We had this group of people. They were young character people that didn't have really a niche to go into. Executive producer George Schlatter gave them one, launching Laugh-In as a weekly show in 1968. Why was it such a perfect fit for the time? We had the same problems then you have now. You had an unpopular war, an unpopular president. I mean, the same problems. The National Rifle Association said today that anyone who would sell guns to minors and unstable people should be shot. <laughs> America lived with the show for six silly seasons. There she is. There. Among its celebrated <laughs> alumni, Lily Tomlin. Here's Edith Ann whom we met in Schlatter's office. I used to do a wicked Edith Ann, I thought. You did? Yes. Oh, great. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> My name is Edith Ann, and I'm five years old. <laughs> and I don't have to say anything if I don't want to. <laughs> she joined Laugh-In in 1969, and she had misgivings. And that's the truth. <laughs> I just thought, well, I'll just get lost in the shuffle. But you must have thought you could bring something to the mix. I didn't know how much I was bringing or I would have asked for more money. <laughs> Her signature character? One ringy dingy. Ernestine, the world's rudest telephone operator. America loved her. <laughs> Where did the snort come from? I began to realize how sexually repressed she was. Yeah. Threatening people all the time, that little petty power. Yes. And 
then, but as I worked on her, her face got all distorted. <laughs> her legs were just wrapped all around. <laughs> Is this the party to whom I am speaking? Ernestine's question was among Laugh-In's most famous catchphrases. You bet your sweet lippy. <laughs> but nothing topped the most famous of all. Sock it to me, honey. Sock it to me? People used to say to me, Laugh-In was the only show that my mom and dad and all of us kids could sit around and watch together. And she said, when Laugh-In went off the air, my parents got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh-In certainly got the last laugh. We're a little late, folks. Good night. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. The 1986 comedy Three Amigos put Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Chevy Chase on horseback for a Wild West adventure. Well, now those first two Amigos, the ones with Martin in their names, are together again and sharing some laughs with our Tony DeCoppa. Yeah, well, I don't need it. It's just two hours before their show in Grand Rapids, Michigan gets underway. Can you give me something to remember you by? Hepatitis wasn't enough! Oh, Caroline, Caroline. And even though Steve Martin and Martin Short are used to getting laughs, they're busy working and reworking their material. Oh What's your favorite scene in one of her movies? Let me show you. Oh, okay. I have a feeling that this is going to be too much, that you should end just with you guys. The thing about comedy is that you're always this close to failure. So the moment you become arrogant, you just, all you have to do is wait. So the fear of failing or the fear of bombing is as intense and acute today as it was your very first time? I don't think it's fear. I think it's like saying to the pilot, why do you always check those buttons every time you fly? You've been flying for 20 years. <laughs> That's what you do. All we ask is you want us. We'll give you our thanks. Their show, An Evening You Will Forget for the Rest of Your Life, now touring nationally and streaming on Netflix. You know, Steve and I are like Donnie and Marie without the sexual tension. <laughs> is a mix of self-mockery. Your comedy was so effortless. Ah, oh, thank you. And I kept thinking, I wonder how it'd be if you put a little effort into it. <laughs> and clever nods to their classic skits. Your teeth are so white. Your smile is like an email from grandma, all caps. We can walk off stage, literally, just edge into the curtain, and we'll turn to each other and say, that one joke, it should come actually before the old right. thing. We'll do that, and I have to have an idea, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That revising immediately, right, in the wings. Well, that's when you can remember it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one would blame Martin Short at 68 or Steve Martin at 72 if they did coast a little bit with a slew of awards. How'd you get so funky? Plenty of memorable sketches. A perfectly good day ruined, right? Wrong. Not with Ronco's new shower in a briefcase. And nearly Marie. 90 movies between Marie. them. Here, boy. Marie! Marie! They're not out to prove anything. This is about two friends having fun. Through the years you've made me grin. 
What's it like getting around together at this? Oh, it's great fun. We it's have great, great fun. fun. Other day I said to Marty, thank God we're not exploiting our friendship. <laughs> and, but the truth is, we're friends, but you know, we don't talk every day. We don't, I don't call him at 8 a.m. Hey, what happened? Steve, I think, feels very close to me, and I view him <laughs> as a cash cow. <laughs> Do you think of your insults together, or you write them individually? Go ahead. <laughs> Do you think of your insults for each other well, we work on them together. together. And by yeah. the way, sometimes we'll swap them. We'll think, no, yeah. I, that's a better insult to you. Yeah. So you have Theirs to is a story that dates back some 30 years when they first met while making the movie Three Amigos. I'm Lucky Day. I'm Ned Niederlander. I'm Dusty Bottoms. So together we're the Three Amigos. <coughs> I just remember thinking, I like this guy. And I'm walking to the set, and, and I hear behind me <laughs> Catherine Hepburn saying, where's my bicycle? <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> no, he does it great. And, and that made that I wish really I brought my bicycle. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> from there, they built largely separate careers, aside from the memorable Father of the Bride movies. I suggest that we select the cake first. Okay. You know, because the cake. More often determined what kind of wedding that you end up having. So let's just choose a cake, okay? But in 2010, after Short's wife of 30 years, Nancy Dolman, died of cancer, Steve Martin was one of the friends who understood that in his mourning, Martin Short might benefit from keeping busy. The next summer, they appeared together on stage for the first time. I took a time off, and then I realized that being busy was normalcy. Yeah. So, you know, if I was home, it seemed like, where's Nan? But if I was in a hotel room in Boston getting ready, that was the norm. How important was he to you in that time? You rely on your friends and your family and time and your intellect. But certainly all my friends were valuable and Steve was one of them. By the way, Martin Short is also the name I use when I check into a hotel and want to be anonymous. Now, you might call them a regular twosome. 35 years later, and you're still the jerk. <laughs> of course, it's a funny time to be funny in America. In this politically correct era, some of those early SNL sketches can be seen as bad form. Our top story tonight. Our top story tonight. It's very tricky. And, you know, I, I, I kind of fall in line with uh, a lot of the... Uh, corrections in language. I, I, I think it's good. There are bits from your past and your past that I don't think you could do today. And many of your colleagues have done bits that I don't think would fly today. I, I think, you know, Steve and I slightly share a difference in this. <laughs> I don't care. I think it's way so ridiculously overreactive now. And so I think you have to be your own barometer and know what is correct or not. Five more minutes to kill. Five more minutes to kill. Fortunately for these two old pros, what's funny is funny, plus a lot of fun. I'm not motivated, at least right now, to write a play or this or that. I'm, I'm motivated by this. I really like this. I don't think because you're 68 you have to, goodbye, you know, I'm not, I don't think you do that. I might win an Oscar. By the way, that was beautiful, and we should put that in the show, Thank goodbye. You. I might win an Oscar at 78. I might, you know, I don't, I can't predict. Unless I was either physically unable or I actually dreaded going to work, I can't ever imagine stopping. And I would hate to think, I'd like to think that I was the best version of myself 
in the last day of my life as a performer. That's clear. You still love it. Yes. Yeah, we actually do. My friend Steve Martin. My friend Martin Short. For our final look this morning at 1968, Susan Spencer takes us back to an eye-opening premiere on the Broadway stage. 50 years ago, hair took root. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, age of Aquarius. It absolutely changed Broadway. The idea that you could have rock music in a Broadway show. Broadway had never seen anything like this. I think the audiences were shocked. It had people with no clothes. And of course, <laughs> they got naked. Well, so many people have been part of hair. Tony Award-winning Broadway director Diane Paulus fell in love with the rock musical Hair when she was just eight years old. Admittedly young for its themes of protest, drugs, and sex. My earliest memory was the album, singing Sodomy, not understanding anything <laughs> of, I mean, I knew that song by heart. Yeah. And then the first time I got to know the show was seeing the film that Milos Forman made in the 70s. Let it fly in the breeze and get caught in the trees. Give a home to the fleas in my hair. The lyrics to some of these songs are hilarious. Yeah. Shining, gleaming, streaming, flax and wax. Yes. Shaggy, snaggy, ratty, matty, oily, greasy, fleecy. What does that mean? <laughs> All different kinds of experiences of hair. Those wacky lyrics and the story itself reflect the times. Young people facing the draft, deciding whether to protest or serve in Vietnam. What was so radical about hair is it was reflecting exactly what was happening in real time in the street, to the point that cast members in the show would get draft notices delivered to the stage door. Wow. This is the original Broadway cast recording. Paulus has her treasured album cover framed. Melba Moore, Diane Keaton, Martha Plimpton. Every, everybody do your moves except for the left. So no surprise, she says, it was a dream come true when she directed the 2009 Broadway revival of Hair. I wanted people who understood what it meant like to be alive in 68 as a young person. And of course, we were always looking for actors with extraordinary hair. <laughs> 50 years later, the sun is still shining. Ahead, inside, outside lands. I see music in between eating meals here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Lee Cowan. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Sunday morning.